Amen. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, if you have been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are in the middle of a series during this Advent season, looking at the beginning chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, in those first three chapters, five times Matthew makes reference, and it's actually six, as we're going to see today, but we're just going to pretend that one of those isn't there. Um, five times he says something about the, the, the early days of Jesus' life and ministry, thus it fulfilled what the prophet had spoken. And so we've been looking at these different scenes from the first few years of his life, and then taking the prophecy that he quotes and going back and looking at that prophecy in its original context in the Old Testament. And so this morning we're going to read from Matthew 2, 16 through 23, where Jesus, who has been exiled into Egypt because of Herod's threat, is coming back uh, into the land from Egypt and is going to settle in Nazareth. And and Matthew says uh, that there is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Jeremiah 31 uh, in the events surrounding all of that. And so we're going to begin by reading from Jeremiah 31, which is a beautiful, beautiful passage of the promise of restoration, and then read again of its fulfillment as Matthew sees it from Matthew 2, 16 through 23. You can follow along with me in your worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me as we read together this morning. Jeremiah 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather them and will keep them as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Wow. Is that good news? Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now, from Matthew 2, as Matthew sees fulfillment of this passage and what he writes about Jesus, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went 
and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. We live in a day in our, in our country where our government has posted threat levels, you know, in the airports and, and such. And it's interesting to me because I, I bet if I was to pull most of you in the crowd, you wouldn't even know, you know, what those colors are and what they correspond to. And I've heard stand-up comedy acts that suggest something a little more, you know, scary than orange and red and yellow. And maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. But, but this idea of being under threat is really something that's really, I think, hard for us to get our minds around. And so I would just ask you, can you use your imagination for me for, for one minute? And let me just ask, what would you do if a man with a gun invaded your house? Or what if, what if a gang of 20 men cornered you on a street corner? Let me ask this, what if, what if you were a citizen in a country with a corrupt government? And the president of that country sent the military special forces to hunt you down and kill you. Can you, can you feel that? And here's what I want to say is, is any of those pictures that I might choose to you know, use, they don't even begin to describe the threat that the scripture says we face. Um, I, Silent Night, I love the song. It's so beautiful and melodic and tender and kind. But there's a real danger in picturing... Um, you know, Christmas exclusively in that, because if you if you go to the end of the Bible, there's a chapter in Revelation and Revelation 12 that has a different picture of the Christmas story. And, and there we're told of a dragon who is crouching at, at the foot of the woman as she is about to give birth to the Messiah, waiting to grab the child so that he might devour the child. And then because the child escapes, the dragon gets very angry and begins to pursue the woman who had given birth to the child. And for centuries, the church has understood this to mean that that we have a real enemy, uh, Satan, uh, an angel who has fallen from the heavens, who rebelled against God most high and was thrown down to the earth, who now hates God. And because he hates God with such passion, he hates his people. And he was the one who came to devour the Christ child who is to come and bring salvation to God's people. But because he escaped, he pursues the woman, the church. But she, too, escaped. And so in Revelation 12, verse 17, here's what we read, what John tries to tell us. He says, the dragon became furious and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And so I wonder, I wonder, because this is so hard for our culture because we live so insulated, I wonder, do you live like you face that threat, not just the president who sent the special ops out to track you down and assassinate you. Do you live as if you're being pursued by a giant red dragon who has one agenda, and that is to steal and to kill and to destroy? Now, it makes sense of our lives, doesn't it? If that's true, if there really is this threat that evil really is real and it's having its way with us. I'm telling you, I was scared to death knowing that our topic today was going to be joy. And so because of joy, we're going to have to talk about sadness. And if you've, you know, I've done this for a while and you just know I'm going to have to talk about sadness. It's not going to be a good week. And so Monday I got in my car to head to a funeral of a child who never made it into the world. I mean, broken hearted and dismayed over having to go and be with this family 
who was going to bury their child who they never got to meet. Um, and as I walk out to my car, I realize that at some point in the night, um, something has died in my car. Coming to realize that the groceries that had come home on Wednesday that we had the kids, you know, we're trying to train our children, go help get the groceries out of the car. Somehow we um, missed a gallon of milk that exploded in my trunk. Praise God. And so I'm driving to Lakeland, gagging, to go to a funeral that I don't want to be at. And I thought, oh, Lord Jesus, this is 930 Monday morning. I'm thinking, this, this is not, I better buckle down. But, I mean, it wouldn't take us very long, any of us, right, if we were to begin to ask the question, what makes you sad? I mean, what, what in your life really makes you sad? I mean, evil is real. There really is a threat. He has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so we are going to face evil. And, it's going, and, it, and in some sense, it's having our, its way with us. And so it makes sense of our lives in all of the areas where things just don't work the way we think they should or, or we, we face opposition. And so I just wonder what makes you sad. Because you see, the response to this really from the Bible is sadness. The mothers in Bethlehem are weeping over their slaughtered children. That's what's going on here. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus most often responds to sin and rebellion and brokenness by being sad. It's interesting. Not so much angry. Sad. You see, it's easier. I asked the question in your your outline there. Why is sadness a better response to pain and sin than anger? It's easier to be angry, to be bitter to be resentful than it is to be sad. And the reason, according to my good friend Paul Miller, is that when we're sad, we're completely powerless. Now, I think I know what he's talking about, and I think it's really important, but I wasn't sure, so I emailed him this week, and this is how he responded to me when I, when I emailed him. He said this. He said, anger is a demand, a fist in the air, to try to bring a painful situation to an end, but sadness has no demand, no fist. It's just broken by the pain of life. Sadness knows it can't change anything. Using the metaphor of a desert, sadness accepts the desert but grieves it. Anger is often trying to fight the desert. So sadness opens this huge door to the heart of God because you're giving up control. And God loves the brokenhearted. I think that's because his own heart is broken. See, what Paul's saying is he's saying sadness is a better response to sin and pain because it really sees the depth and the breadth of the problem. Anger's shallow. When I'm angry, it usually means that I think it's somebody else's fault. You know, anger anger's willful a lot of times, but sadness, sadness is surrender. It's saying to God, I can't do anything about this. You know, it's too big for me. You've got to come and do something. You've got to come and save me. And that's exactly what God is doing in Jesus here. You see, God has come in Jesus not only to forgive us of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. He has come to make us whole, to give us hearts, to love and obey him, and to make all things new. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look just at this, and you'll see these are the three points in your outline. We want to see that the gospel addresses both sin and death. The gospel addresses both our guilt and our ruin, number one. Number two, I'm going to have to prove that to you biblically from this passage. And then lastly, we're just going to ask the question, then how does Jesus accomplish this? So the gospel addresses both sin and death, both our guilt and our ruin. I'm going to prove it, and then I'm going to show you how he does it. So let's just start here. You'll see in your outline there, sin and death. How does the gospel 
address both our sin and death. Let's review for just a minute. Uh, The first week of Advent, if you look at these candles with me, the first week of Advent we talked about Jesus being our Savior, that he has come to save us from our sins by dying the death we should have died and living the life that we should have lived, that he hung upon a cross in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. In week two, we talked about Jesus, our King, that he has come and is bringing a kingdom and, and will make all things new. In week three, we looked at Jesus as our righteousness, that he came to share in our humanity and our weakness, you might remember from last week. And where we have failed, he was faithful, and so he's won for us a righteousness that is ours by faith, that he came to deal with the problem of sin. But that's not all, because today we're going to look and see that Jesus is also our healer, that he's come to take our diseased hearts and to heal them, to take what is broken in our lives and in our society and to make it whole. Now, you see, here are the categories we've got to deal with this morning. We've got to deal with these categories. If you look there, sin and death, or if you're familiar with the old catechisms, um, it would be guilt and ruin. So we've got to think about it in, the, in terms of these categories, okay? The problem, in other words, with the world is man's sin and rebellion against God. That sin and selfishness destroy the fabric of what God has made. That's what the scriptures teach. <clears throat> but it's interesting that the catechisms we use to teach our children... They, they ask this question, and it's really great. They say, how, you know, in what state did God create the man and the woman? And the answer is he created them holy and happy. He created them holy. He created them uh, righteous, perfect in their devotion to him, that they were completely, they were undivided in their loyalty and their devotion to God, that they listened to his voice and obeyed. And because there was a holiness, they were also happy. Everything was great. It was paradise. They were naked and unashamed, which I can't fathom, right? Everything, that their their relationship with God was perfect. Their relationship with one another was perfect. Their relationship with the creation was perfect. They were holy and therefore happy. But, But when the fall came, the catechism goes on to ask this question, then what happened in the fall? And here's the way it says it. It says, they went from being holy and happy to being sinful and miserable. They became guilty. There was a corruption, and, and, and there was a stain that came because of their rebellion. And what happened is, is because of their sin, they were no longer happy. They became miserable. They became sad. Now, here's what the catechism is trying to teach us from the Scripture, that first, that we are guilty. That we are guilty. And it's easy to come to this passage and to look at Herod's violence and cruelty and to make a connection with the people who have hurt us, right? Isn't that the easiest way to read this? Herod frothing at the mouth, seeking to destroy the Christ child. But, but what I think we have to see as we read about Herod's violence and, and just his heart here is that you have to see yourself in Herod. That Herod had one agenda, and that was his will to power. He'd destroy anybody who got in his way. And you've got to see that in your heart, that, you're, and that I'm capable of the same thing, that we all in our natural hearts hate God and would love to get our hands on him so we could kill him. I mean, Jesus tells a parable, in fact, in, later in Matthew, about the tenants in a vineyard who, are, who were unhappy with the arrangement because they, wanted, they did not want to live under the authority of the one who owned the vineyard. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. And so when the owner sent his servants to check on how things were going, they killed them. And then finally, the owner decided, you know, I'll send my son. And then Jesus says, and they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they did. 
And Jesus is telling the story to help us understand our own hearts. That we're stubborn in, in our rebellion and sin. That we do not listen to him. That we, too, have one agenda. And that is to be free from all constraints so that we can do what we want to do without him. That's what the Bible calls sin. That we're guilty. We're guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's where I want us to see this morning that that what the Scripture teaches is not only that we're guilty, but as a result, then we're also ruined. Because we're guilty, we're also ruined. The result is our lives don't work right. We, We try to live without Him, but honestly, it's like putting water in the gas tank of your car and trying to drive across town. It doesn't work. And when we try to live independently of God, we just... Honestly, make a mess of things. Our lives don't work. You know, we strive. <laughs> you know, we work, and in the end, we accomplish very little. We struggle to find meaning and purpose. Our relationships don't work. You know, even in the closest relationships, there's strife and envy and conflict and yuckiness. I mean, the Scripture says the earth doesn't work anymore. The climate is spinning out of control. There are hurricanes and drought. And famine and all sorts of things. And the Bible teaches us to trace all of this back to the curse that God put on all of humanity because of the sin of the first man and the first woman. We live under a curse that pervades every aspect of our lives. It affects us psychologically. It affects our relationships with one another. It affects our work. It even affects our relationship to the ground. There are thorns and thistles that grow, the Bible says, because of our sin. And what's fun about Christmas time is, is you might forget this about yourself and your family until Christmas rolls around. Anybody else experience this? I mean, come to my, come to my house, you know, not, you know, come, but gather the larger family together and see everybody. We couldn't love one another more, but we couldn't be more dysfunctional than we are. I mean, one of my favorite, I can't remember when it came out, but one of my favorite movies, if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out, is the, the movie Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon. Anybody seen that? Oh, my gosh. So hilarious. Because it's just, it's just getting into that. We, we are broken. This doesn't work. We are dysfunctional. And we couldn't love one another more. So, you see, we're guilty and we're ruined And so Jesus' work then has to come and has to address both of those things. He has to come and save us from our guilt. And in fact, that's what we've been talking about he's come to do. Revelation 21.3, which we read, says that the end result of all that he has done is that God will dwell with us again. And we'll be in right relationship with him. But, see, his work also has to be that he's come to save us from the curse and the ruin of sin. My favorite line, enjoy to the world. No more let sin nor sorrows grow. Do you know this? No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Can you finish it? Far as the curse is found. I mean, what is, what is he meditating on? He sees that after Jesus' death, he was put in a tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven to reign over all creation with all authority and power. And from heaven he sent his spirit to live in us, to breathe life into our deadness. To make us new and through the power of the spirit, he is recreating us into his image. And then through us, he's recreating the whole world until everything sad comes untrue. And that's what Revelation says. Revelation 21, we read no more crying, no more pain, no more death. That's what he's come to do. 
both guilt and ruin. The curse. He's come to go after the curse. Now, to prove this biblically, let's come actually come to the text in Jeremiah 31. So look there uh, in your worship folder with me. And in Jeremiah 31, <clears throat> Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel in the days leading up to their exile in Babylon. Uh, so the people were going to be kicked out of the land by God because of their sin. This particular passage in Jeremiah 31 is about the hope of what God would do on the other side of the exile. So in verse 10, <clears throat> just follow along with me, you'll see he scattered them. They've been kicked out of the land of Israel into foreign lands in exile. But he says he will sustain them. And then in verses thir- 11 through 13, he says, though they're being forced to deal with pain and hardship now, there will be a day when they will sing and dance and rejoice again. Look at the language in verse 12. Grain, God will bless them with grain and wine and oil. They will be like a watered garden, I love that, and will not languish. In other words, they'll experience the fullness of God's blessing, the life they were made for. And so God promises in verse 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. I will satisfy them with my goodness. And if your life is full of sadness this morning because of the brokenness, you know, the ruin and the curse of sin, that's good news. But then comes verse 15, which Matthew quotes. And in verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Now, here's what's going on there. Ramah was the staging point for the exile about five miles north of Jerusalem. And so as the people of God were being taken into exile, what would happen is, as you've seen the movies of the Holocaust, where the first thing they would do with the families is they'd separate the children from the parents. And so as the people are leaving, you know, being kicked out of their of their land, their captors are taking their children and the mothers of Israel are inconsolable. They're weeping and crying as their children who are clinging to their legs are being ripped away from them and carried off into exile to never see them again. Now, some of you experience this every time you drop your little kids off at the nursery. Right? I've seen it. But can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine the horror And yet God says there's hope. And so the Lord goes on to say, keep your voice from weeping. I'm going to bring you back. Verse 17. There's hope for your future. What he's saying, what what Jeremiah is saying is God is going to come to them in their exile and he's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back into the land and take their sadness and make it dancing to bless them and make them strong. Now, Matthew So come to Matthew 2. Matthew is telling the story about the mothers of Bethlehem weeping because Herod has slaughtered their children. And he sees a connection with the events in Jeremiah 31. And his point is this. Here's his point. Israel is still in exile. Israel's still in exile. They're still waiting for God to come and to fulfill what he promised, to deal with their sin and to heal their brokenness and to make them new. They're back in the land, but they're not they're they're still in exile. They're in the land, but all the stuff the prophets said would happen hasn't happened. And this helps us understand what Matthew believes Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring his people out of exile. He's come to fulfill all of the Old Testament passages. Now, do we have those? Do you guys know if we have those on the screen? No, we don't. Okay. So I I, I included and it's my fault because I did it very last minute, but I included some of these passages like 
Hosea 14, where God says, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Or Amos 9, when God says, I will restore their fortunes. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in the land, and they shall never be uprooted again. And God is making these incredible promises through the prophets to his people who are in exile saying, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to make everything great and I'm going to take everything sad and I'm going to make it come untrue and I am going to do what I promised at the beginning to do. I'm going to overthrow evil. Matthew, telling the story of Jesus, says this is what he's come to do. But there's a problem, isn't there? And that is that life is still full of sadness and suffering. That the fullness of what God is promising in this restoration has not yet come. There's coming a day, as we read in Revelation 21, when God will dwell with us and he will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more mourning or pain or death, but not yet. We still mourn. We still cry. We still have to deal with the painful effects of sin. People we love still die. Cancer still grips us, but only for a little while. And here's the thing. Even now... In Jesus Christ, God has broken into history to begin the work of turning our sorrow into joy. And for everything else, we pray, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, but in the meantime at least this. In Matthew 4, which we'll look at more closely in a few weeks, we're given a snapshot of what Jesus' ministry looks like. And it says in Matthew 4:23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I know these verses present a problem to our particular theological construct. I get that, but it doesn't do to just ignore it. People get sick. People die of cancer. I understand that. But without addressing all of the difficulties, we can say this. Part of what Jesus has come to do is he's come to heal us. He's come to heal us of our anxiety and fear and cowardice and joylessness, and that's good news. He's come to heal our hearts of their their stubbornness and apostasy. He's come to heal marriages, and that's good news if your marriage is broken. He's come even to heal the social structures and policies that keep people in poverty. My wife and I saw the blind side finally last night. He's come to address those things. And the way we enter into the work of what Jesus has come to do, the Scripture is trying to teach us, is through this. It's through sadness. Sadness is the movement of the gospel. It's repentance and faith. What we have to see is we've got to stop blaming everybody else. We've got to stop seeing everybody else as the problem and seeing ourselves as the solution. Sadness really is repentance. It's also turning to to God in faith. It's realizing that we're powerless to save ourselves. It's crying out for God to come in Jesus and do what only he can do in our lives. And so what I want you to see is it's almost impossible to go from anger to joy. You can't go from anger to joy. You first have to move from anger to sadness and then from sadness to joy. You have to enter into your sadness and let it create a longing in you for the one who can come, the only one who can come and turn your sadness into dancing and joy. That's what it means to need a Savior. We won't ever pray. Angry people don't pray. They rebuke people. We won't ever pray until we let God take when we surrender through our sadness, come to the end of ourselves, and cry out for Jesus to save us. And that's hard. 
Because when you're sad, you're powerless. You have to trust Jesus to save you. And the reason I want to say to you this morning that you can trust him with your sadness is because he, too, was a man of sorrows. He left the joy of heaven to come to earth to taste our sadness, as the hymn says. And so Matthew gets at this, and we're coming to a close here, when he talks about Jesus, Joseph's decision to settle in Nazareth. He claims there, if you look down at the end of Matthew 2, uh, he went, verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's problems with that. Number one, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say Messiah would be from Nazareth. All of the scholars are united on this point. So what is Matthew doing there? If you look really closely at the grammar there, you'll see in verse 23, it's unique in two ways. Number one, first, he uses the plural prophets. And then number two, only here is the Greek word for saying omitted in the original language and replaced with a conjunction which signals Matthew's using an indirect quotation. So what all that means is this, that Matthew is referring to the meaning of what was said in the prophets and not the exact words. There shouldn't be quotations. The ESV has it wrong. Matthew's summarizing the teaching of the prophets when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. But what does that mean? Do you remember when um, they, they came to Nathaniel in the beginning chapters of John and they told him we found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth? Do you remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, we had so much fun doing this in our preaching meeting because what we found out is people from Lakeland, uh, you know, on that side of the county would say, Does anything, can anything good come from Mulberry? You know, and I just tried to think of how, you know, how do you do that without just being rude? You know, but it's funny how in every culture, you know, people from Winter Haven might say, when I was growing up, was could anything good come from Arbordale? Right? But then, but then Arbordale would say, is anything good come from Polk City? I mean, you know, I mean, every culture, right? Go down, go down 27. We were, Jonathan, we were laughing about this. You know, people from Lake Wales, you know, can anything good come from Lake Wales? Well, people in Lake Wales, can anything good come from Frostproof? I mean, seriously. You know, people in Frostproof, can anything good come from Hardy County? I mean, you know, or maybe the best way to say it is if you're if you're a Seminole fan, then you can amen me when I say, can anything good come out of Gainesville? I mean, really. That is the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> on the way to the mountain of God. Right. We hold our breath on I-75 when we're going through Gainesville. So you see, this is what this is getting at, right? So you might, a list of adjectives to describe Nazareth. Despised, out of the way, insignificant, forgotten, small. Here we go. Podunk, boondocks. Not exactly the most obvious choice for the hometown of the king of kings. And that's the point. See, Matthew means to point us to passages in the prophets that characterize the Messiah as the one who's come to suffer, to be weak and despised and rejected. Passages like Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteem him not. Isaiah 53 goes on to say that this man of sorrows would take our sin upon himself and that God would destroy him. And here's what that means. Here's what I want you to see. What the Scripture is trying to teach us about the work of Christ is that he became a curse for us. Because of our sin, we're under a curse. Remember we said that? 
But Jesus came and took the curse upon himself. And so Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, the only way for God to lift the curse from our lives was for Jesus to become a curse in our place. He was whole. He took upon himself our curse so that we who are cursed might be made whole through the work of his spirit. There's only one way broken people can be made whole, and that is that Jesus' body was broken to bits. The only way for God to stop evil was to subject himself to it. The only way for him to overthrow the evil power structures of the sinful world is that he, the one with true power, became powerless and allowed himself to be victimized. You see, that's why he came. And it's why he was raised in the dusty streets of Nazareth and not in the shiny halls of the palaces of Jerusalem. And so you can give your sadness to him. You can come to him. Don't, don't not come to him. Don't let your anger keep you from taking your sadness to him it's so he can heal you. Now, we need to close, but I need to say one thing that I've not been able to say in this whole series that I'm not going to be able to say if I don't say it now, and that's just this. Fathers, let me talk to you for 30 seconds and then I'm done. Matthew's the only pers- only one of the gospel writers that really highlights Joseph's role in all of this, but... But throughout the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew has highlighted Joseph's obedience in hearing the voice of God and doing what he said. So you'll look and you'll see, for example, in verse 21 of Matthew 2, um, go back to verse 20. The angel says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Verse 21, and he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. There's a there's the exact same wording in both of those. And, and, and the point is just this. Joseph was an obedient man. Fathers, husbands, you are the first line of defense. There is a great red dragon pursuing your family, your city, your kids. And God's intent, if if the son of the Most High God needed an earthly father who would be obedient, your kids need one too. And we've got work to do. And so let's pray and ask him, to come and begin to do that work in us. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you were a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief because that means that in our sorrow, in our despair, and in our sin, we can come to you and and believe that you can take our sorrow and turn it into dancing. I pray for my friends today as we ramp up to Christmas. Uh, I think of all of the joy of that day. Um, of the unwrapping of presents and of the eating and feasting with family, but I pray it wouldn't be a shallow joy. And so I pray that you would, I pray, this sounds crazy, I pray that you would um, give us grace this week to enter into the sadness of our lives and to sit there with it so that Friday morning we would experience joy like we've never experienced, that it wouldn't be shallow, that it wouldn't be a circumstantial joy, that it would be a joy because of a hope of one who came to overthrow sin and death, who's coming to make all things new. Savior Jesus Christ, may he be our hope, and may may it turn our anger to sadness and our sadness to joy for your glory. Amen. Amen. The more we come to truly believe that, the more we will find in our hearts the joy 
that is uh, appropriate for the celebration of Christmas. One thing before you leave, uh, please come back uh, Thursday evening at 5.30 to be with us. Um, we, it is going to be a service that's geared uh, for the inclusion of small children. We're going to do a story time. We're going to have candles, you know, which can be dangerous with small children, honestly. But, you know, we're going to do a candlelight thing. It's going to be a great service. It'll be short. Um, and so please come with us. But one thing, we really, we really would, the pastors, would really like to be able to offer child care for very small children. Uh, but we can't do that unless somebody's willing to, to fall on the sword and sacrifice, be a great gift to other families at Christmas time. If you're willing to come and be with the kids on that night, come see me or Jonathan or Ashley. Find somebody uh, so that we can, Connie, so that we can make those arrangements because we really would like to do that, okay? Uh, so please come and be with us Thursday evening. We look forward to that. That's going to be fun. We're, not, we're really excited about that. So this morning... Uh, no more let sin nor sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As you leave, wherever, whatever you know, places you, wherever you're going where there might be curse, know that he is the one who has come and taken upon the curse himself so that now he can go with you to do exactly that, to make his blessings flow. So receive the benediction and the promise of his blessings flowing into your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his, peace, turn, turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forever, men. Amen. Go and rejoice in him.